to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast devoted to unpacking faith, life, and leadership. The goal, to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well, welcome to episode number 11 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I am your host, and I hope that our conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. We live in a microwave culture, and, and by that, mean, what, what I mean is we live in a culture that expects everything to happen instantaneously, including spiritual transformation. And one of the key truths in the Bible is that when we accept Christ, we are promised God's Spirit to live in us and to change us, to transform us. And, and many people feel like they're still waiting for that transformation to happen years afterwards. When does God change us and and how does he do it and when and what does that even look like or feel like? Well, as you might have guessed, spiritual transformation is not a moment to be kind of popped into a microwave, but it is a process. It is a journey. And today, our guest is Dr. Shane Wood to discuss this journey of transformation. Shane wrote a book about a year ago called Between Two Trees. It's a story of transformation from death to life, and it's a powerful, powerful interview. This is interview part two of a previous interview that I did with Shane. The first one I released was an excerpt from this interview on racism. But in this episode, we discuss not that issue, but God's pathway of transformation. So let's jump into my interview with Shane on his book, Between Two Trees. Well, I'm honored to have Shane Wood on the podcast. Shane, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Skylar. I appreciate it, buddy. Shane, I, uh, I had, I've had many classes uh, with you, and uh, even at Ozark, um, I had a, had a fairly big beard, and so we had some, some um, similarities there, you know, when you had, a, you had your beard um, going. Um, camaraderie with our facial hair. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, Shane, um, I know you, um, uh, I guess, fairly well, um, but just for our audience uh, who may not know you, can you just uh, t- fill us in a little bit about yourself, like your spiritual mm-hmm. journey, what led you to becoming a Christian and then in the mm-hmm. pastoral ministry and eventually becoming a professor at Ozark? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was basically born in a pew. Like I, my family has been in the church um, and we, every time the church doors were open for as young as I can remember, uh, faith was a part of our life. So at the time, you know, we, we had Sunday school in the morning, church in the morning, Sunday night, you know, church, and then Wednesday night church, always at church. So it was always kind of a part of it. But um, uh, I I think my faith, uh, as opposed to like, when did I, a moment when I came, I mean, I know, you know, I was, you know, baptized on July 12th, um, 1991. Uh, but I feel like my faith continues just to unfold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even recently, I, I have a picture, it's up in my office, um, of whenever I was, my parents tell me I'm two years old and I'm standing. Matter of fact, let me just, let me grab it real quick. I'm standing on my grandma's uh, couch. So you can see this is like eighties, you know, so the oh, couch yeah. with the, you know, uh, but at the, at the, at my feet is a Bible. And my parents said that always, even at the age of two, three, four, when the family was around, um, I would either be uh, performing Michael Jackson songs or I would be preaching. And that's oh, what I'm wow. doing in this picture. I'm, I'm shaking my fists and I'm preaching. So I feel like the Lord 
has put a calling on my heart um, that's been drawing me to him ever since I was basically in the womb. Wow. Um, you know, and I had those big moments um, in, you know, in high school. I mean, getting baptized when I was nine was a big moment in my faith development, um, deciding to go into ministry at a Christ in Youth conference my junior year in high school. Uh, big, big shift. And then, then my faith began to unfold even more at, at um, Bible college and at, at my undergrad at Ozark Christian College. So we share more than one alma mater, which is kind of fun, Skylar. But um, uh, and then, and then what's fascinating is, um, you know, some people will even ask me as part of my faith journey, like, how'd you become a professor in the Bible? And what's interesting is a lot of it is not, was never goal oriented for me. Hmm. It was never a goal of mine as a kid to be a minister. It just kind of, that was just the next step. And what I felt like God was unfolding in me, it was never a goal of mine to be a professor. Um, and I still don't even think it's a goal of mine. I don't even, I'm not convinced I'll even do this the rest of my life. Um, I, I, it wasn't a goal of mine to get a PhD. It's, it was just a part of, I felt like the Lord in that moment was saying, this is the next step. Um, it was never a goal of mine, you know, to get married, but I did that cause I felt like the Lord was saying it's the next step or to have four kids or to adopt our youngest or, and so for me, a lot of my faith journey has been just figuring out what the next step was, taking the step, not knowing where it would end. Um, even though whenever we take moments like this, I stop and look back. There's, there's quite a few milestones and mile markers along the way that I maybe could have pieced together what the Lord was doing. But um, that was never really a, what I spent a lot of my time on. It was mm -hmm. more just how do I press deeper into him? Um, and then everything just kind of unfolded from there. So that my faith journey then is it's kind of, it's both simultaneously, uh, you know, circuitous and yet not that interesting, <laughs> but, it, but it means something to me, you know? Cool. Cool. So it's kind of just like this, <laughs> forgive me if this sounds bad, but kind of a free, kind of free spirit, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you just kind of, you just follow God where he leads, you know, and your goal is, uh, I guess, kind of has been, intuitively you know paying attention to what god is telling you each step of the way you know so and uh then here you are yeah that's cool yeah and just just allowing it to unfold i mean what i've what i've found a lot in my life is the more that i watch people or even myself try to force god's will to unfold there's a lot of strain but very little movement hmm. so just trying to step into the stream that the spirit's already already pushing down the river so <laughs> cool cool um, well, Shane, you um, you wrote a book uh, a little while back, a um, couple of years, I think, a couple of years now. It was um, last year, actually, yeah. Was it yeah. last year? Okay, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. COVID-19 is all, right. all backwards. So. Everything feels like a decade after COVID, yeah. right? <laughs> so, you, so you wrote a book called Between Two Trees, um, an excellent, excellent book. Um, really, really enjoyed it, Shane. So thank you for writing that. Um, before yeah. we kind of, I guess, dive in and talk about your book, um, I'm just curious, but was there like a seed that inspired the idea mm. behind this book? Like what is the backstory behind, um, what you wrote? That's a great question because it actually, it actually plays into some of what we just talked about with my story. Um, I, I didn't know this was the book I was writing even when I sat down to write. Uh, matter of fact, I talk about this in the introduction. It's like, actually, I was, had signed a contract with the publisher to write a book on how to read the book of Revelation. 
and I, I get 60% of the way right in it. And I had to go back to the publisher and be like, Hey, you know, that book that I sold you, it's a totally different book. Are you sure you still want it? And to Leafwood's credit, they were like, absolutely. But when I sat down, I was wrestling with a lot of, um, it, it was really kind of a, what's the word? A, an intersection of a lot of things happening in my own heart, my own mind and my own life. Um, I had been doing a lot of inner work, uh, counseling and um, wrestling with my story and things I had not for at the time I was 31, just finished my PhD, um, had been a professor for four or five years and had not really dealt with some a lot of the big, big rocks in my story. So I talk about it in chapter seven, how I was molested at the age of six and um and actually, I don't say this in the book, but I was actually molested from the ages of six to 11 by multiple people, multiple locations. Wow. I had told no one. Mm. I was 31, had been teaching the Bible for five years, had been you know, a minister in the church for, at that time, uh, around 10 or 11 years. I, I had never even dealt with it. Mm. Um, and so a lot of that was unearthing. A lot of questions for me about atonement uh, were going through my mind at the time, too. Um, some different prominent voices, uh, especially within my movement and my circles, were pushing a particular atonement view that um, that I'm not saying is wrong. It just wasn't the one that I was drawn to. And so I had a lot of questions to the Lord about like, hey, what really? Like what, what, what really happened on the cross? And so with my own inner story and what was happening and with my own questions intellectually about the atonement, the book Between Two Trees emerged, which the the subtitle really is where a lot of the a lot of the meat of the book is it's our transformation from death to life um, and i believe that that christ's atonement isn't just about getting me away from hell and into heaven i believe it's about complete transformation into the image we were created in to begin with uh starting now and continuing throughout all of eternity and so really the book the book came out of me wrestling with my own story internally and me having questions that frankly i told the lord if I can't answer these questions, I don't know that I can keep doing what you've asked me to do. So for me, it wasn't just like, Hey, I want to give something to the church. Although I'm excited. I'm excited. It's blessing other people. But honestly, for me, it was a, this is, this is a matter of me sorting out something for survival of my faith. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Shane, that's very rich. I, uh, that gives for me looking back at the book, that gives a whole nother layer of meaning and, um, Mm. Um, uh, kind of a, a different perspective looking at that book. That's really cool. Um, well, I'm, mm. Shane, I'm glad you wrestled with that because I have benefited greatly from that book um, because of well, good because of that. So, um, Shane, I, I don't know if uh, if anybody you know is listening uh, to this has has yet read the book, but they should. Sure. Um, <laughs> but can you can you break down uh, maybe some of the key ideas? I, you kind of alluded to that a little bit. Can, can you break down the book, some key ideas, kind of the Cliff Notes version? Yeah. Um, you know, the book begins with this observation, and this is where the title Between Two Trees comes from. The book begins with the observation that the Bible ends, Revelation 22, it ends similarly to how the Bible begins. And, and that is, we end the Bible in the garden, uh, with the tree of life. And so, and so we, it's fascinating to see the tree of life emerge in chapter 22, because what's, what's, what was really startling was whenever I was like, well, where else has the tree of life appeared in the Bible? And it's basically nowhere. Hmm. Like it just goes dormant after Genesis chapter three, where the fall after that, we don't even really talk about the tree of life at all 
until Revelation 22. And the observation is, well, you know, we, we, we end at the tree of life where we began at the tree of life, but here's my problem. We live life between these two trees. We don't, we don't live in Eden and we don't live in heaven. We live in this world caught between two trees and this world caught between two trees is hard. Um, and so I wrestle with questions like why, why, what, what really happened in the garden of Eden and how is that impacting us today? And what really happened at the tree that what I call uh, the tree between two trees, the cross of Calvary, the true tree of life. And I believe that the cross of Calvary, the true tree of life is ultimately what helps us navigate this world that's caught between two trees because on Calvary, Jesus was nailed to a tree, literally between two other trees, two other crosses. Mm. And so for me, this imagery is not just wow. the way that the whole Bible is framed, uh, but it's also the way that, that atonement, salvation, what God came to do through Jesus was framed, um, that hopefully then helps me navigate the brokenness in my own heart and in this world. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I was, when I, when I first kind of got into the book and you're talking about, you know, death and life, the, the tree of life and um, all of that, um, I, I thought, wow, Shane, that's really interesting. And the more I read and simultaneously like getting in the word, I'm like, holy moly, like this is very much like, I'm, I mean, the gospel of John and Revelation is just saturated with these imageries of death and life and even yeah. how, um, you know, uh, scripture just talks about the, the these these different kind of um, I guess polar opposites of each other, yeah. um, of death and life. And I just thought, wow, man, Shane, like you were, I mean, you really onto onto this, you know, like what happened mm. in Eden. Can you, I guess, can you break down a little bit? Um, you talk about a union with death. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, one of the things I asked is, you know, if we're going to understand how Genesis 3 really impacted and created this setting of brokenness between two trees, we need to define a word that we use all the time in the church that we assume we know what it means, but a lot of us don't really know what it means. And that's the word sin. It's like, well, what is sin? It's like, well, Jesus saved me from my sins. Like we talk about sin a lot, but, but whenever you press people and say, what is sin? Usually it's either complete confusion or it's people, they'll say something like this. Well, it's breaking, breaking one of God's rules. And here is my question. My question was, but, but what if it's worse than that? What if it's worse than just breaking a rule? I'm not saying it isn't that. I'm saying like, what if it actually impacts us more than just breaking a law? Um, matter of fact, then I started to think through, you know, there, there, it's one of the things that's fascinating. I love doing this with the Bible is you find these threads yeah. That they're actually weaving the whole tapestry together, but you can overlook them when you're looking at the whole tapestry. And one of these threads is ingestion, ingesting food, uh, in drinking. So like, you know, the, the, the um, communion, the Lord's Supper, we eat the bread that is Christ's body and we, we drink the cup that is his blood. But the first ingestion of which I believe ingestion is a definition that, that is union. Like whenever I take a drink of this coffee, it actually is moving from one place and it unites with me in such a way that you can't even pull them apart anymore. Mm. So, so union is this, this theme that is moving through. And what happens in Genesis three is not just, they break a rule by eating from a tree. They actually ingest death. They become one flesh with death. So there's this union with death and that presents this unique problem. If God wants to rescue us, because if he wants to rescue us, he can't just say, I'm going to obliterate death because if he obliterates death, the union is so intense that it actually obliterates us. 
So instead, this to me explains also why it is that even as Christians that are um, saved by Jesus and because of his resurrection, it's the reason why we still experience death, both physically and throughout our spiritual journey of, of God taking stuff from our past and putting it to death. Or as Paul says, you know, in Galatians 2.20, you know, being crucified with Christ uh, so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ conquering death isn't the obliteration of death, because if he did that, it would obliterate us because we're united with it. Christ conquering of death is repurposing this union that we chose in the garden so that now in Christ, whenever we push into our death, it actually leads to union with God, which is the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So union becomes this, this centerpiece of not just the problem, sin, but also the solution. Um, and that's what Paul Paul seems to indicate. Um, so Ephesians 5, he brings up this text from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, where the two you know, leave their father and mother and the two become one flesh. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, but this is a profound mystery for I'm, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. Two becoming one flesh. And we usually make it, we take that verse in Genesis 2, 24, we make it about physical sex. But Paul goes, whoa, whoa. Sex is, a, is an entry point to the concept of union, but what we're talking about is far beyond what the physical realm can actually contain. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I think we're really talking about what God in the Bible talks about when it says the word atonement or salvation. Mm-hmm. It's about union with God instead of union with death. Wow. I, uh, I was, one of the things... Um, <laughs> <laughs> such a profound and deep concept. And yet you, um, you just, uh, you did a good job, Shane, just kind of um, making this di- di- digestible. <laughs> Great pun. Well played. <laughs> so I just, I just couldn't eat, eat the pages, you know, so I couldn't, you know, um, anyway, no, I mean, it, uh, you even think, you know, talking about Paul talking about us being spiritually dead, you know, in, yeah. in Ephesians and, that whole the whole imagery of death and this disunity, this um, breaking of our our fellowship, our relationship, our communion with God. You know, it's um, anyway that that was just it was it was profound. And you even think about how Christ, you know, you said repurpose, but he, you know, he he used what the enemy intended to um, destroy humanity, and you know, he repurposed it. Now that's our entrance back. And yes, so, so good. And what. And what you just said right there was one of the big worshipful moments of me. And as I'm on, as I'm wrestling with this in the book is that there is a tenderness to God there in that he didn't, he didn't overthrow our choice to unite with death. He's, he honored that choice Mm. and still repurposed it for union with him. He didn't just say, you guys really screwed up whenever you united with death. And I'm just going to completely eradicate that. He says, you chose I will not obliterate your choice. I will honor it by dying myself so that it can be transformed into union with me. Mm. Cause that was always his goal. Yeah. Like union with us is why in Genesis one, he creates us in his image. His movement towards us is so obvious throughout all the scripture. And even whenever we chose a different partner to become one with death, he doesn't just overthrow that like some evil tyrant. He actually tenderly honors our choice, but repurposes it for his will. Hmm. 
the, the best way to engage these issues is to first do the most difficult thing, and that's to move internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something, and I say it's the most difficult because a lot of times we have no problem speaking publicly about stuff that we believe in, especially in the social media world where everybody's an expert on every topic. Uh, but for me, a lot of these issues I'm going, if, if you actually dealt with the brokenness of your own story in your own life first, then, then the way in which you engage it externally naturally shifts. I feel like we invert this a lot though. We try to figure out how do I speak about this publicly but we don't do the more difficult work of unearthing the brokenness inside of us. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best way to deal with these types of issues is to, is to get used to staring in the mirror and not hiding from the mirrors that try to reflect everything that, that, is, that we are projecting. Um, but most of us don't want to do that. Matter of fact, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why the pandemic has been so difficult. Uh, the pandemic and quarantine, I, spe- I mean, you, you're in Illinois, right? So y'all, Y'all's quarantine's no joke. Like your your governor's not messing around. Uh, but a lot of the reason I'm noticing um, a lot of in my pastoring of people, um, the pain is pretty intense because pain that is left untransformed is transferred from one person to another. And and we found ways in the busyness of our lives and in our our routines and our rhythms and. Um, and frankly, even sacrificing ourselves by being involved in a thousand programs at our churches, we found ways to not have to stare into the mirror of the brokenness of our own soul. Yeah. Well, the pandemic has quarantined us, has forced us to be at home. Uh, one of the things that's very disturbing is I heard a report recently that the, uh, the amount of child abuse cases has gone down dramatically during the quarantine. And that's terrifying. It's not because they're not there. It's because there's no way to report it. Mm. So what's happening now is that there's no outlet for the pain. The pain is so self-contained inside of our homes that usually the people that are in the closest circles are experience. They're the only release valve for your pain, but no one can actually be a part of your circle to see what it is that's happening. So you usually find yourself then in situations like this lashing out uniquely uh, at different people that even usually are closest to you. Why? Because the pain of staring into the mirror and dealing with your own brokenness is so intense uh, that we would rather hit someone else in order uh, instead of actually dealing with the brokenness that we see right in front of us. People self-medicate in so many different ways. We all do this. Every one of us do it. The problem is, is that sometimes our self-medication for the pain that we feel of the untransformed brokenness inside of us, some of that self-medication is socially acceptable, like workaholism. Workaholics have just as much brokenness as alcoholics. Alcoholism is just not socially acceptable. Workaholism is patted on the back. But what if you can't go to work? What if you can't go to movie theaters and get lost for two to three hours? What if you can't go to sporting events and to get lost for a couple of hours being dedicated to a team? Or what happens if there's no political debates because even all of them are being quarantined? Where does the pain go? If you really want to deal with these issues... This is whether we're in quarantine or not. Do the hard internal work of refusing to hide from the pain from your past, the pain that controls your every move every day. Deal with it straight. So a lot of times whenever I sign books, which I always felt very uncomfortable doing, yeah. and, but people ask. And so as I'm signing, I said, you know, I'm going to change this into a moment where I'm doing something I feel is very awkward. I'm going to change it into a prayer moment. 
And so I usually, as I'm talking to them, I'm praying what I'm writing down over them. And one of the things I found myself writing a lot to the people I was talking to is, is this line, may God's wounds heal your wounds or may, or I'll say it some other way, like may your wounds be healed by his wounds. A lot of the times though, so I don't put this in the book too, but a lot of, you know, as, as a dad of four, we had a lot of bicycle wrecks. And whenever my kids uh, would, 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 would like, you know, they'd come up screaming, you'd think you're going to have like an arm or a limb hanging off, but, but it's just usually a scraped knee. And what they all do, doesn't matter. Every one of them, my kids are so different personality, you know, so different, but they all did the same thing. They're covering their wound on their knee with their hands. And as their dad, the first thing I have to do is to convince them that the only way to heal the wound is to, to uncover it and to expose it. Take your hands off the wound. That's good. And once, once they do that, then the healing can begin. But until they do that, healing can't even happen. The problem is when you take your hands off of the wound, you're going to experience more pain before you experience the healing. But, but the, the worst pain you can experience is to keep your hands over the wound because then it becomes infected. And then it starts to affect not just your leg, it starts to affect your entire body. And most of us Christians are walking around with our hands covering our wounds, like Adam and Eve did by sowing fig leaves to try to hide their shameful nakedness from the all-knowing God. We're doing the same things as our mom and dad did back in Genesis 3. So, so really, for me, how do you deal with racism? Drop your fig leaves. Be vulnerable. Expose your wounds so that healing in you can happen so that then you'll be prepared to start healing other people. Man, and that's, that, that's the, the place of pain is also the place of transformation. Yes. And I, I, I heard it said, somebody, somebody way smarter than me said, um, you know, we change when the pain, of, uh, the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Yeah. Yeah, and what's what's the bummer is is that we have an incredibly high tolerance for pain. Mm. So so a lot of the times movement doesn't happen because our pain tolerance is through the roof. Yeah. And truthfully, the pain tolerance is through the roof, so we can endure a lot of a pain that that actually keeps us in the same space. But also, number two, we also believe the lie that um, there is no hope for anything to change. So I I intentionally wanted the word transformation in my title. So it's in the subtitle, Our Transformation from Death to Life. Why? I think that's the number one thing Satan has attacked in modern day America. He has convinced us that transformation, changing is not possible. You're born just this way. I was just wired. God wired me this way. I mean, it's all kinds of different ways of saying it. But we're saying the same thing. All I need to do is to embrace who it is I was born to be. And then... Then, you know, follow your own heart. That's a phrase we hear a lot. It's, it's saying the same thing. Same thing as this. You can't change. And so in this Western world where we're hearing this, just embrace who you are. I can't change. Going, does it surprise you that we have all of these suicide reports and antidepressants being written out in prescriptions? Because our heart longs to be different. Our heart longs to change and to be transformed. But we don't even believe it's possible. So we have a high tolerance for pain and we don't think change is possible. So we stay in the same place and that pain that is untransformed just keeps, keeps getting handed out to other people around us. Mm -hmm. 
Shane, well, um, what's, what's, what's the message of hope, you know, like to, to somebody who's, you know, maybe been a Christian for a while and they just don't see the transformation they want, they hope to see. And then you have somebody else on the other side of the spectrum who their life's a mess and they just, they, mm-hmm. they look at the things in front of them and it's just a, a million pieces, pieces shattered in front of them. And they think there's no good that can come of this. Is there hope? Yeah. Yeah. To both groups, I would start with this, and then I would say something a little different to each. To both groups, I would say this. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Our God is in the business of transformation. As a matter of fact, the the Holy Spirit, who in a lot of times, especially in the evangelical circles, we don't really talk about much. The Holy Spirit's entire job is to create things new. That's what the Spirit does. And that's why Jesus was so excited in John 16, when he was like, you don't understand, it's going to be so good that I leave because the Spirit's going to come. And you're like, why is that good? Because he's going, because when the Spirit comes, then working on you from the inside out, I, God gets to do his best work. Like the w- first time we see the Spirit's in Genesis 1, hovering over the earth that is formless and void, about ready to make creation, to make all things new. Then we see the Spirit at Pentecost when the gospel is being important. I mean, we see the Spirit always in context of new creation, because that's what our spirit does. Mm. The spirit of God creates things new. The second thing I would say is this, uh, but, but it is not a moment. This is a movement of the spirit. Mm. So, so I have a whole chapter at the end of the book on permission. Um, and, it, and I think the subtitle is like the path of transformation. And one of those sections in there, it's called a moment versus a movement. We think transformation should be instantaneous. Yeah. Um, but actually I point out in the book, it's like, actually the definition of cancer is too rapid of growth. Mm. Like can't, we all have cancer cells. It's whenever the growth of those cancer cells gets rapid that we actually have full blown cancer. So God, God moves us at the pace of transformation that number one, we're committed to. And number two, that we can actually handle. Um, so think about whenever you get in a car wreck, you know, an ER doctor doesn't do every surgery that you need the very moment that you go into the hospital. Because even though you need all those surgeries, if we did all of those, it would actually hurt you. It could kill you. Instead, the doctor prioritizes which surgeries are the most important right now. And the spirit does the same thing too in our own hearts. And it happens over time. Matter of fact, you'll have these deep diggings of the spirit at time. And when you respond, then the spirit will say, you just need to take a couple of months and just heal. So just rest, just go relax. But then the spirit will start to stir inside of us and it'll upheave again. And the spirit will say, let's take off this new layer. Now you need to relax. Um, transformation is more like gardening uh, than it is like going to Walmart and buying produce from the produce section. Mm. And gardening takes time. It takes patience. It has little critters that come in and steal the fruit. But ultimately, ultimately, fruit is being formed. And this is, this is the good news for both of them the ones that have been Christians a long time and the ones that are shattered. Every decision that you make, you become someone different Mm. for better or worse. Every single decision that you make is transforming you into someone. So the question is what decisions are you making? And when you take, make those decisions in Christ through the spirit over a long period of time, then you will see those decisions together have a cumulative effect of transformation. One of the best things a Christian can do is to stop and ask this question, what has actually occurred over the last five years of my walk with Jesus? You will start to see transformations been happening, but it was happening so subtle 
that you didn't even know was happening. And those, the people that find themselves where their hearts are absolutely shattered and their world is falling apart, here's the beautiful thing. One decision today to step deeper into Jesus can change who you are tomorrow. And especially if you do that same type of a step every single day, it unfolds. Transformation is unfolding. Mm. But we just don't see it that way. Shane, that is so good. Thank you so much um, for one, writing the book and then taking the time to share with us and break down um, some of those key important topics that, that we need today. You know, we need to lean into the pain, not for pain's sake, but because that is where yeah. God wants to work in all of our lives. Absolutely. So, Shane, thanks hey, so much. Dude. Thank you for having me, Skylar. I appreciate it, man. If you haven't yet picked up and read his book, I put a link in the show notes so you can get it. Uh, it is a really powerful and surprisingly easy read. This book causes you to think twice about the decisions that you make throughout your day as well as deepen your appreciation for what God has done and will continue to do in you. I highly recommend this book. Uh, he also has some free video courses where he breaks down all of the key points um, that he talks about in this book. And I can put a link to that in the show notes as well. Next week, we have a really exciting guest. My guest is Dr. Mark Moore. Mark did his PhD on the politics of Jesus. How cool is that? He was also my former professor at Ozark Christian College, and he's, he's the author of a book called Core 52, which is an absolute must to have as a Christian. Mark is currently the teaching pastor at Christ Church of the Valley in Arizona, where they have over 20,000 people in attendance. And we are going to talk about the hot topic issue of civil disobedience. Uh, when is it permitted to say no to the rulers and yes to God? And when do Christians get it right? And when do they get them wrong? I hope you will join us next Wednesday for that conversation. But before we uh, get out of here, do me a quick favor. Could you sim simply leave a rating and a review on this podcast? Uh, and I would also love to hear how this is impacting you personally. And I'd love to hear, too, uh, if you would have any recommendations or suggestions about people you would love to hear me interview, as well as topics to address. And you can put all that in uh, the review as well. Well, I hope this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact with your life. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week as we talk about civil disobedience with Dr. Mark Moore. 